Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 is where we are now. Uh, It's on page 2 of the paperback Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it would benefit you if you had one in your lap. If you didn't bring one, there's these paperback Bibles. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, we would love for this Bible to be our gift to you. So feel free to take that paperback Bible home if you would like. Genesis chapter 4. Most of you probably know or remember from history class, our second president of the United States, his name was John Adams. And many of you might even remember that John Adams had a son named John Quincy Adams who also became president of the United States. John Quincy Adams was our sixth president of the United States. But what many of you maybe don't know is that John Adams had another son. Actually, he had two other sons, but one of his other sons was named Charles, Charles Adams. And Charles didn't quite make it to the White House like John Quincy did. Charles didn't have the illustrious life that John Quincy did. In fact, Charles became an alcoholic and eventually died of cirrhosis of the liver at age 30. Here we have two brothers born to the same parents, born in the same time period, born in the same culture, and yet they turned out very differently, very different lives. And that's what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 4. We see another story of two brothers, two sons, who end up having very different lives, except the long-term significance of these brothers that we're reading about in Genesis 4 is much more profound, much more relevant to you and me sitting here in this sanctuary today, because what we're going to see is that one of these brothers is a descendant of Eve, who the Bible describes as the mother of all the living. And the other brother is a descendant of the serpent, whose father is the devil. And what we see here in Genesis 4 is these two brothers who are representing two entirely different groups of people in all of humankind and throughout all of history. Two groups of people in all humankind are divided here in the representation of these men named Cain and Abel. Now the Bible <clears throat> you know, certainly acknowledges that there are gray areas in our lives and, and we all know that there are many cases in our lives where we don't always know exactly what is right and wrong and things are not black and white, they're, they're very gray, but when it comes to the question of who is saved and who is not and who is going to heaven and who is not and whose sins are covered and whose sins are not, the Bible is very black and white. The Bible talks about the sheep and the goats. The Bible talks about the righteous and the wicked. The Bible talks about the narrow way and the broad way. The Bible talks about those who are in Christ, those who are not in Christ. Two separate, black and white, different groups. All humankind divided into these two groups of people. And it all goes back to the beginning that we're reading about here in Genesis 4. One group following in the line of Cain and the other group following in the line of Abel. So we are, uh, as you know, going through the book of Genesis here. 
um, <clears throat> at New Life, the Gospel according to Genesis. We've been looking in detail at the story of Adam and Eve in the first three chapters, and we find ourselves here at chapter 4. So if you're able to stand, please do that. And I'm going to read the first 16 verses of Genesis 4. <clears throat> Genesis 4, starting with verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from the face, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Holy Spirit, come, open our eyes, open our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we see this story here of Cain and Abel, and yet we should notice actually that there's really a lot more here about Cain than about Abel. We don't learn a lot about Abel, a lot more about Cain. And so we're going to consider this passage here from Cain's perspective. And the first thing we see here is something about Cain's attitude toward worship. And this then represents this line of people who come from him who are the seed of the serpent. Cain's attitude toward worship. Now, remember, we always have to remember what came before when we read the scriptures. We're not just taking these passages out of a vacuum. Remember that back in chapter 1, verse 28, there was a command that God gave to Adam and Eve that they would be fruitful and they would multiply. And so here at the beginning of chapter 4, we're seeing that Adam and Eve are obeying that command to be fruitful. And so it says, Adam knew his wife. Now, that word knew... Uh, doesn't mean just intellectual knowledge, but it's very often used in the Old Testament for sexual intimacy, actually. So 
That's what the text is telling us. There was intimacy between Adam and Eve, and she conceived, and two bouncing baby boys were produced here by Adam and Eve, and the first one's name is Cain in verse 1. Eve exclaims, I've gotten a man from the help of the Lord. He has fulfilled his promise and given me this son. But then in verse 2, we see again she bore a brother, Abel. And these two guys grow up, and each of them uh, find their skill, their specialty. Cain ends up being a uh, keeper or a worker of the ground, it says at the end of verse 2. Abel is a keeper of the of the sheep. So Cain is a farmer, basically, or, or a gardener, and Abel is a shepherd. And one of the first things we learn about these two men is their approach to worship. We hear about their occupations, but now we hear something about one of their activities, which is to approach God in worship. And I think even here there's something significant for us, that even this early in the history of mankind, there was this inclination to worship God. From the very beginning, this is the tendency, the instinct that we all have to worship our creator. In fact, this is part of what it is to be human, is to be a worshiper of God. And that's why we see this happen so early in the story of humankind. But we have Cain and Abel now bringing offerings. This is how they worship God. They're they're bringing offerings, and they bring different offerings. And so in verse 3 we see the offering that Cain brings. It's an offering of the fruit of the ground. And then in verse 4, we see Abel's offering. He brings the firstborn of his flock, and along with that, their fat portions. And then we see that God has a different response to each of these approaches to worship, to each of these Offerings In verse 4, we see God has regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In other words, God rejected Cain's offering. He rejected Cain's worship, but he accepted Abel's offering. He accepted Abel's Worship, And so one thing we see here right away is that not just every way we might want to approach God is acceptable to him. I think sometimes we think we'll go on Sunday mornings and it doesn't really matter how we think, what we do, or how we prepare. It's all okay. Well, here we see, no, there are certain approaches to God in worship that are acceptable and others <clears throat> that are not. But the big question here is why Does God accept Abel's offering and not accept Cain's offering? Why? And the text doesn't really tell us. So we wish that the text were explicit about this, but it's not, at least here. Um, There are a lot of theories about what's going on here. Commentators have spilled a lot of ink, giving their different ideas about why one is accepted and the other is not. Uh, Some say it's because of the quality of the offering. You'll notice that Cain's offering in verse 3 is from the fruit of the ground. But it doesn't say first fruits of the ground compared to Abel who brings the firstborn of the flock. And so some say Abel is bringing an offering that is more worthy. It's the firstborn. It's the best 
Whereas Cain offered only the fruit of the ground, not the first fruit of the ground, maybe something secondary, and so that's why God rejected Cain's offering. That's one idea. Uh, you also see Abel bringing the fat portions. Those would be the most valuable portions of, uh, of an offering. And so perhaps that's what attracted God. Some others will say that um, the issue here is which offering involved blood. Because Cain here is offering uh, something from the ground, so it didn't require the shedding of any blood, but Abel is offering the firstborn from his flock, so he had to take a, a sheep and slaughter that sheep and bring that offering to God. And so perhaps it's the fact that Abel brought a blood offering and Cain didn't. Maybe that's why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. I think one problem with that view is when you look into the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll find that there are certain offerings that are not blood offerings that are accepted, like grain offerings. So there are bloodless offerings accepted by God in the Old Testament. So maybe that's not it. I, I think what we have to do here, if we want to be safe and if we want to get the answer is, as best as we can, we have to allow the Bible to interpret itself. And in particular, when we read the Old Testament, it's always helpful to look to the New Testament and see what does the New Testament tell us about what the Old Testament says. And we might wish that the New Testament explained every verse in the Old Testament. It doesn't. But in some cases, the New Testament does give us insight, sheds light for us on Old Testament passages. And so this is just one of those such passages. We look to Hebrews chapter 11. And here's what it says. <clears throat> By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. You might remember Hebrews 11 is about all of the, the, the great uh, heroes of the Bible who exercise faith. That's the theme of the whole chapter, is those who walked by faith. And so it's by faith that Abel offered to God this sacrifice. Uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. The implication here, based on Hebrews 11, is that Abel brought his offering in faith, and Cain didn't. That's, that's the issue. That's the difference that worship and our approach to God is not about our external adornments or our outward performance as much as it is about the attitude of our hearts and our sincerity and our faith and trust in who God is and what he has done for us. That's the most important thing, not just going through the motions, but coming with trust and faith and love for God. Throughout the scriptures, we'll see examples where God rejects other sacrifices as well. We see this in the first chapter of Isaiah. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Israel, says the Lord, I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I don't delight in any of this stuff because your guys' hearts are so far from me, is what God is saying in Isaiah 1. Just going through the motions and offering it up certain sacrifices is not necessarily pleasing to God. 
what he's looking for is an attitude of the heart. And in Psalm 51, we get even something very specific about the kind of attitude that he's looking for. Here's David, and he says, For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. That's what God is looking for. That's the way to approach God properly, in humility, in sorrow for our sin, in a broken spirit, bringing to him our own brokenness, not our outward performances, in an attempt to bribe him into giving us blessing. And that's apparently what Cain was doing here, thinking he could get God's attention by bringing an offering when his heart wasn't in it. You can see the, the, the possibility. You can see the temptation that, that people might have. You know, they uh, have a job interview that week, so you know, maybe they never go to church. But, oh, this Sunday I'm going to church because I got a job interview. You know, I need God to show up here, or I have a doctor's appointment, so I'm going to put a little extra money in the plate on this Sunday. <laughs> you know, as if we can bribe God to bless us. What Cain is showing us here is that outward performance means very little apart from inward faith because apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. Stephen Charnock, the great Puritan writer, said this, without the heart, it is not worship. It's a stage play. It's a performance. We may truly be said to worship God, though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship him if we lack sincerity so there's comfort here friends that you don't have to bring a lot of money you don't have to bring your a game to worship god properly what you need to bring is your brokenness and your sorrow for your sin and lay it at the foot of the cross and that's what pleases god in worship so that's what we see first of all here with cain his attitude toward worship secondly though we see now cain's hatred toward others. Cain, the one, again, representing the seed of the serpent, not the offspring of Eve, but the seed of the serpent, we see his hatred of others. Cain's offering, it's not accepted, and Cain is not happy about this, as we see in verse 5. He's very angry. And so what's going on here? Well, um, it could be a, a number of things. It could be here that Cain's heart is now filled with envy, and hatred, as he looks upon his brother Abel, apparently Abel is the brother who does everything right. You know, this is the classic sibling rivalry here. Cain is resenting Abel because he's the favored brother even by God. And so this anger is welling up in Cain's heart. And so God then in verse 7 brings a warning to him. And he says to Cain in verse 7, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? And he warns him here. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So God is giving Cain an opportunity here. He's saying, look, Cain, you can, you can, you can do better here. You don't have to fall into the anger that is rising up in your heart. But here's one thing I want to warn you about, Cain, is that you're in a situation right now where sin is about ready to jump on you and devour you. 
And you have to be aware of that. You're in a situation where sin is about to get the upper hand on you, and so you have to rule over it. Sin is crouching and hiding and waiting for an opportunity to get you. That's what God is saying. Um, this uh, picture here is of our puppy, uh, Moby. I don't know how well you can really see that. I've told you a story about Moby before. He's about five months old, a border collie. And um, th this is Moby right here. This is uh, head poking out from behind a dresser in our dining room. And so here's what he does. I like to throw the ball for, for Moby, and whenever I pick up the ball, he immediately goes and he hides behind something. So what he's doing is he's crouching, and he's waiting, and when I roll out that ball, he is going to jump out and pounce on it. And then he's going to bring it to me, and he's going to go hide again, and we're going to go through that over and over and over and over. <laughs> But this is kind of a picture of what we're reading about here in verse 7. This is the way sin acts. It crouches. It hides. It's around the corner, and it's waiting for an opportunity to pounce on you. That's the way it works. And very often when this happens is at an opportune time, like during a time of tension, like during a family squabble, like what's going on here with Cain and Abel. You're tired, you're angry, you're frustrated. That's when sin rises up and rules over us. And what God is doing here with Cain is warning him about the danger and the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will get you, it is after you. It is your biggest problem. It is your greatest danger, friends. Sin, it's after you. It is not to be lightly regarded. It's hiding, it's waiting. There's a Puritan <clears throat> named Jeremiah Burroughs has written this book called The Evil of Evils. He's talking about the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and he makes the point in this book, he says, there is more evil in the greatest affliction that we might endure than there is in the least sin. More evil, excuse me, I, I got that backward. There is more evil in the least sin than there is in the greatest affliction. That's Burroughs' point. More evil in the least sin than there is in the greatest affliction. And so he writes this, all men are afraid of afflictions and troubled at affliction, but where's the man or woman that fears sin and flies, flees from it as if it's a snake? Where's that person? There is more evil in sin than in all the miseries and torments of hell itself. That's what, what God is doing here with Cain. He's trying to warn Cain. Sin is after you, friends. And I'll ask you today, I mean, how much do you hate sin? How much do you realize the deceitfulness of sin? How much are you on guard for what sin might do to you? What steps do you take to avoid sin? In whatever situation you're in, and maybe particularly in family situations under the roof of your own household where the most sin is perhaps committed, sin's crouching at the door. It wants to jump out and pounce on you. So how does Cain <coughs> respond here? How does Cain respond? And the answer is not well. God says you must rule over this sin, but what happens is the sin rules over Cain. And so verse 8 Cain speaks to his brother Abel. Friendly conversation. How you doing, Abel? 
kind of being a little sneaky and deceitful, leads him out into a field. And when Cain and Abel are out in the field alone, Cain rises up and kills him. The very first murder in human history. How providential that we're already considering the sixth commandment. Do not murder here this morning. Here is the very first murder, and we see how quickly mankind, humankind, is descending into the depths of evil. Immediately, the very first offspring of Adam and Eve, and we have a murder committed. What's going on here, and we have to keep this in mind because, again, it's so important to not read chapter 4 in isolation, but chapter 4 follows chapter 3. And in chapter 3, there are certain things said that are revealing themselves in chapter 4. And so remember chapter 3, verse 15. Remember this, the first gospel, the proto-evangelium, remember? Here's what God says to the serpent. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, between your offspring, between your descendants, Satan, and between her offspring, the, uh, the woman's descendants. Between these two, there's going to be enmity. And that word enmity, we could say, is hostility. We could say that that word means violence. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen right here in chapter 4. Here's a descendant of the woman, but spiritually speaking, they're descendants of others. They're descendants of something greater. One's the descendant of God. The other is the descendant of the serpent. And enmity takes place as Cain rises up in violent hostility and kills Abel. Now, we've we got to try to also think about what, how would Adam and Eve be responding to this? I mean, the text doesn't really tell us. It's true, but again, remember, Adam and Eve received this promise from God in chapter 3, verse 15, and the promise goes on to say that uh, the, the offspring, the descendant Eve of you is going to bruise the head of the serpent. In other words, the promise is saying that Eve, you're going to give birth to a descendant who's going to kill the serpent. It's going to kill Satan. It's going to undo all the problems that have been created through the fall in the garden. That, that person is coming. It's a descendant. And so Adam knows Eve, and they have Cain and Abel. And what are Cain and Abel? They are descendants. They are Eve's offspring. And so you've got to think that Adam and Eve are thinking to themselves, one of these guys is the Messiah. This is the promise that God said a descendant's going to come and going to crush the head of the serpent. Praise God, the Messiah is here. And we see what has happened here now with Cain. Now, <laughs> Cain's killed his brother, so clearly Cain is not this righteous one. Cain is not the one who is going to kill the serpent, so it must be Abel. Abel is the Messiah. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you for sending this descendant to kill the serpent. And then what happens? Cain kills Abel. The, the promised descendant is dead. All of the hope that God had given to Adam and Eve, it's over. The descendant's been killed. Don't, don't you imagine that's probably what they, what they thought? They must have been asking themselves... What about God's promise? Did, did evil just triumph over good? Did God just fail to produce and to fulfill his promise? Is there any more hope? Is it all over? Is this redemptive project done? Satan reigns and God is dead? 
mean, that's what a lot of our philosophers will tell us today, and I'm guessing those are some of the same questions that went through Adam's and Eve's minds. And maybe you have that same kind of thought today in your life. You look at things that have happened and it seems to you like evil has triumphed in your personal life, in the world at large, in our culture. You feel like there's no hope. But friends, what God is doing in the long term is always bigger and better than our immediate circumstances would indicate. Always. The immediate circumstances surrounding Adam and Eve is that the descendant is dead, but God's up to something bigger, greater. It's going to take a lot more time than they anticipated. God's not done. God's promises are still going to be fulfilled. He's still faithful. A descendant is still going to come. It's just not Abel. It's not going to be Seth either, who's going to be born next. And it's not going to be Noah. It's not going to be Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Or David. It's not going to be any of those guys who come centuries later. But eventually, as Galatians 4 tells us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Another woman comes, the mother Mary, who gives birth to the Messiah. And finally, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. You see how God is doing something much bigger, much greater, much grander in something that's going to take a whole lot more time than perhaps Adam and Eve anticipated. And that's what's going on in our lives too. God is doing something that's bigger and better and greater than you expect. And you don't see it right now. But it's coming. And that's what Advent actually is all about. It's waiting for God to fulfill his promises when it seems like he won't. When it seems like he hasn't. When it seems like it's impossible that he could ever do what he said he was going to do. In Advent, we wait and we trust and we know that God is faithful as he showed in fulfilling 315 many centuries later. But it seemed like that whole project was interrupted when Cain expressed this hatred toward his brother, uh, but good triumphs over evil in the giving of Jesus eventually. And so now we look at the last thing here, which is Cain's hardness toward God. Again, Cain, the seed, the offspring of the serpent. He has a faithless attitude toward worship. He's filled with hate toward others. And he has a hardness toward God that we see throughout this passage. Um, one thing to notice here is God is actually very gracious toward Cain. Maybe you noticed that as we were reading. Um, one of the ways he shows his grace is, is that after the murder, after Cain murders the brother, God comes in verse 9 and says, Cain, where's Abel? Now that's a pretty gentle approach to someone who's just committed murder. And we saw this in the way God related to Adam and Eve in the garden too. I mean, God knows where Abel is. God knows Abel is lying, his body is in a field somewhere, lifeless and dead. God knows that. But he comes to Cain and he says, where's, where's Abel? What he's doing is he's giving Cain the opportunity to say, God, I killed him. I'm sorry. He's eliciting a confession here from Cain, giving Cain an opportunity, but it doesn't happen. And then even later here, when um, Cain fears that he's going to be killed, we see that in verse 14. Um, he says, you've driven me today from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. Uh, this is um, the penalty that God has placed upon 
Cain, that he's going to be a fugitive and a wanderer and the ground's going to be cursed. And um, uh, Cain says, you know, what's going to happen here is I'm going to be killed. He becomes afraid of this. And what God does is he promises that that's not going to happen. And he promises protection upon Cain. And he even assures Cain by putting a mark on him in verse 15. We don't really know what this mark is, but it's some kind of a mark that it's going to protect him from attack and it's going to give assurance to Cain of God's faithfulness and kindness to him. And God is saying, no one's going to kill you, Cain, because I'm going to protect you. I mean, that's just an amazing display of grace. Cain just murdered Abel, the first murderer in all human history, and God steps in in his kindness. I mean, God is kind even to the wicked, friends. He's loving and merciful and good to all. Jesus says the sun rises on the evil and the good. God sends rain on the unjust and the just. He's good to all. He's even good to Cain. But Cain's heart is hard toward God. And this is the essential element of the person who is the seed of the serpent, a hardness toward God. And we see this in various ways. Number one, we see his anger. Again, going back to verse 5, God doesn't accept his offering. You would think that Cain might think, okay, let's try again. Uh, this is God, after all, telling me that the offering wasn't what he was looking for, so perhaps I should repent and correct and change and come back and try again. No, Cain's angry. He didn't get what he wants. He's very angry, not only at Abel, but presumably here at God as well. He's filled with anger toward God. He's also filled with denial. He won't take responsibility for what he did. Verse 9, God comes to Cain. Where is Abel your brother? And what is Cain's response? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, do you hear the resentment, the, the disrespect in that question? Do, do, do you hear the sarcasm? Do you hear the defiance? Who are you, God, to ask me this question? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, the irony of that is that the answer to that question is, yes, you are. <laughs> you are your brother's keeper. You were responsible to care and love your brother, certainly not to kill him. Yes, actually. But Cain won't accept responsibility. Nope, it's not me. It's not my problem. I wasn't responsible for him to begin with. It's okay if I killed him. That's kind of his reasoning. And then lastly, we see Cain's self-pity. His self-pity. Um, again, God has inflicted this penalty upon Cain, cursing the ground in verse 11, causing him to be a wanderer on the earth in verse 12, which when you think about it is really not a very harsh penalty for someone who just murdered somebody. And yet what is Cain's response in verse 13? It's too much for me to bear. It's too harsh my punishment is greater than I can bear. Oh God, you're so mean. You're not being fair. You're unjust. Your penalty, your judgment is too harsh on me. And he falls into this kind of self-pity and won't accept the rightful judgment of God. This is Cain's hardness of heart. He's hard toward God. And so what we see here is that throughout the ages, throughout the centuries that follow this story in Genesis chapter 4, we see these two kinds of people, these two groups 
in all of humankind. There's one group of people. They're angry at God. They won't take responsibility for their sin. They pity themselves. They reject God. They want nothing to do with him. They hate him. They resist him, and they defy him. That's one group. And then the other group are those who follow in the line of Abel. These are righteous people who, in their humility, bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Two groups. There's no in-between. This is not a gray area. Black and white, sheep and goats, righteous and wicked, Cain and Abel, which one are you? In which group do you belong? Do you know? Do you know how that you can know that you are in the line of Abel and not the line of Cain, that you are among the righteous and not the wicked, that you are among the sheep and not the goats? It all has to do with your response to Jesus Christ. This sermon series is called The Gospel According to Genesis. So again, I always want to ask this question, where's the gospel in this? And it's here, friends, in seed form, in cryptic form, like in the past. And here's where we see it, that this is the first passage in the scriptures where blood is mentioned, specifically, explicitly. The first passage where blood is mentioned. Look at verse 10. The Lord says to Cain, what have you done after the murder? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel is already dead, and yet what God is saying is that his shed blood on the earth is speaking somehow. After his death, the blood of Abel speaks. And friends, after Jesus shed blood, his blood still speaks as well. Abel's blood cried out. Jesus' blood cries out as well. And in fact, we see in Hebrews 12 something very um, clear about the connection between the two. It says, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than Abel. It speaks more loudly. It speaks more clearly. It speaks more profoundly and if you are one who is trusting in this Jesus today his blood cries out for you today and that blood does not cry out for your condemnation it cries out for your justification it does not cry out for God's vengeance upon you it cries out for God's grace and mercy upon you it does not cry out for God's wrath to be upon you it cries out for God's everlasting love to be upon you now and forevermore. The blood of Abel points us to the blood of Jesus, a much better sacrifice that cries out for all who trust in him. And those who trust in him have the assurance that they indeed are in the line of Abel and not Cain, a seed of the woman, not the seed of the serpent. What can wash away your sin? What can make you whole again? nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, thank you for your word and for what it tells us about your gospel. Shed blood to atone for sins. Thank you for doing that for us. And God, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name and his name alone. Amen.